We just got started a little bit on uh, verse 11 last week in the time that was remaining after the missionaries shared with us. The verse says, By the blessing of the upright the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Now, verse 10 and verse 11 couple together. When it goes well with the righteous, verse 10 says, the city rejoiceth, and when the wicked perish, there is shouting. But the blessing, by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. And when men live their lives on the level with God, and when they, uh, when they are related properly to God, then God sends blessing. And the thing that takes place, and this is true historically, uh, though it all can't always be discerned, is that uh, when there is a minimum number uh, of people who are righteous, people who are walking with God, people who are living their lives in, in accord with Scripture, God often sends blessing to their lives and then a subsequent blessing to their city or to their nation uh, or uh, to the people that are round about them. There's sort of a, there's sort of a special benefit. I think really that it, uh, it relates to some degree uh, to the idea of believers being the salt of the earth. Uh, we know from Second Thessalonians that uh, there is a spirit who hinders evil in the world. And uh, uh, we, we believe on the basis of the exegesis of that passage and its comparison with other scripture, uh, we believe that that, uh, that blessing uh, that, uh, that comes, or that, that hindrance that comes uh, to the world and to uh, a nation, is the Holy Spirit, as He dwells in the hearts and lives of believers today, or as He dwells in His church, it says when that spirit is taken away, then there's going to be rampant evil. And there are some of us that believe firmly that that's an indication of the rapture of the church. That what will happen is that the church will be raptured, and hence the Spirit of God in His special and unique indwelling presence in the church will be taken away. And when that influence has been taken away, then... Uh, there will be nothing left to restrain the man of sin from exposing himself as to who he is and ultimately bringing great tribulation upon the earth. And uh, so it's that, it's that catching away of, uh, the, of the church uh, that will, will ultimately allow evil to run rampant. And so there, there's clear indication in Scripture that when there are righteous people in a present situation, God will often send blessing to even the, the pagans round about. I, I believe with all my heart that even though there were, there were certainly uh, some individuals in our heritage that were misguided and did not understand the real issues of Scripture, Nevertheless, the Pilgrim Fathers, when they came to this land, came to establish righteousness in the nation. And uh, ultimately the nation was founded, and uh, uh, then down the line, as you well know, there has always been a, 
a, a ministry through believers in this land. One of the reasons it could thrive was because of the freedom of religion, uh, which is so much a part of our heritage. And it's given us the opportunity uh, to, to freely use our, our resources uh, to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the, the fact that we've had um, a number of people and uh, quite a large number of people in this nation who really fear God has brought unusual blessing to this nation. I don't think there's ever been a nation on earth that has had so much blessing in such a short amount of time as this nation. The thing we have to realize, though, is that uh, as that uh, influence shifts, the nation can fall just as quickly as it rose. So the text here then says that um, by the blessing of the upright, the Yashar, the city is exalted. There is an exaltation. That word room, which um, we studied a bit last week, means to rise or to raise up or to be lofty. And God, uh, of course, is the highest of all. His rank is high. Uh, superior wisdom is high. Uh, victory uh, is uh, evidenced by an exalted position. Not only is it the position from which victory can be obtained, but it also is the uh, is the, the the place where a person uh, stands in the position of victory. Political rank is spoken of as being high. Uh, the high hand of an individual often spoke of victory. God's high hand, however, often spoke of judgment. The high horn or the place of exaltation is a place of joy, according to 1 Samuel 2.1. And God can make a man high in rank. It's God who exalts. It's God who places up. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And verse 7. The Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich. He bringeth low, and lifteth up. He is the one who brings people to a place of exaltation. Uh, he raiseth the, the poor out of the dust, and lifteth up the beggar from the refuse, to set him among princes, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them, and he will keep the feet of his saints, and so on. So you see, it's God who raises up. God can take the poorest person. He can take the lowliest person, and he can place him on high. And that's true of individuals. That's also true of what God can do for a city or for a nation. Then in 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. And verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu the son of Hanani against Basha, saying... For as much as I exalted thee out of the dust and made thee prince over my people Israel, and thou hast walked in the ways 
of Jeroboam and hast made my people Israel to sin to provoke me to anger with their sins behold I will take away the prosperity of Basha and the, pros uh, the posterity of his house and will make thy house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. He that dieth of Basha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dieth of his in the fields shall the fowls of the air eat. A terrible death of, of Basha. And uh, Basha, of course, uh, was one of the kings of Israel, uh, the ten uh, northern tribes that uh, warred against Judah, the two southern tribes. And uh, Judah was remaining faithful to God. And uh, Asa, of course, was the king in Judah at that time. And Basha came against the people of God. And God says to them, look, I'm the one that exalted you. And I'm going to take it away from you as well. Another word concerning exaltation is that men can exalt God in praise. God, of course, is high and lifted up. Um, maybe I could illustrate it best by something Paul said in Philippians. He says that Christ may be magnified in my body. Now, uh, to, to magnify God sounds like uh, almost a contradiction in terms. Uh, magnify means to make great. And uh, how can you take the great God and make him great? Well, you can't make God any greater than he is. He's the greatest. But in the eyes of men, he's belittled. And therefore, what Paul meant was that my life can, can be sort of a magnifying glass. So men who, uh, who are blind, really, to all of the greatness of God can be made to see. That's how you make God great. Well, you exalt God the same way. You can't exalt God any higher than he is. But in the eyes of men, God is not in that lofty position, the place of victory, the place of joy, the place of greatness. God is, is belittled. He is, he is looked upon as, as uh, not worth considering by a lot of men. And we, as we praise Him, can, uh, in the eyes of, of men round about, can, can lift Him up so that He can be see, seen. Christ said, if I am lifted up, I will draw men to myself. He meant lifted up on the cross, which was a, a tremendous thing accomplished for mankind. But uh, we today lift him up before men and exalt him. Look at uh, Psalm 30. Psalm 30. And verse 1. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up and uh, hath not made my foes to rejoice over me. You lifted me up. I'm going to, in turn, I'm going to extol you. I'm going to lift up my voice and, uh, and bring you glory and bring you praise. Psalm 99 and verse 5. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Worship him, but also exalt him. Raise him up 
If as men begin to curse and as men uh, begin to, uh, to belittle him, you raise him up, you magnify him, you give him, you give him praise and glory. Now, the thing that we should realize is that, that God is, is talking about raising up the city. He is exalting the city. How? Because he has chosen to bless individuals who are upright. And the way he does this is uh, a number of things. First of all, their blessings enlarge their sphere of influence. The blessing of the upright enlarges the sphere of their influence. When an individual is blessed by God, it gives to him the opportunity to uh, share even more uh, with other individuals and spread the word of the Lord to other individuals. You know, you think of the nation of Israel as an example. God says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of people, because actually you were the least of people. I didn't choose you because you were so wonderful, because you actually weren't so wonderful, you know. But God says, I chose you sovereignly. And I am giving you an exalted position. I'm blessing you. And he talks about material blessing, political blessing, family blessing, one blessing after another that God says, blessed are you in the fields, blessed are you in the city, Blessed are you in the country. Blessed are you wherever you go, he says. But then he says this. He says, uh, if, if you forget, though, who you are, and you forget what I've done for you, and you forget that the blessing that has come didn't come by your hand, but came from me, then cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in the city. Curse, curse, curse. And in actual fact, that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They became cursed. Not cursed because of uh, uh, God just arbitrarily uh, sending a curse upon them. Not at all. God simply kept his word. Kept his covenant promises. And when the people forgot God and said, My hands have gotten me this wealth. I did this by the might of my own power. And God began to remove the blessing. It's interesting, too, to note in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3, where there is the picture of the churches, uh, the seven churches, which can represent not only local churches of that day that had particular uh, twists to their life, but I believe can also be sort of a panorama of historical events as well, and sort of, in, in that sense, prophetic. And... Uh, it's interesting to note that the first church was the church of Ephesus. And uh, that church was, was really uh, commended for all that, all that they had done. But uh, then it says, but I have one thing against thee. You've left your first love. Your hearts have grown cold. Your hearts are not, not on fire with, with, with a passion. Uh, for me and for my word. You've left your first love. And then there's a deteriorating standard in those churches, all except the church of Philadelphia. There is a, a deteriorating standard until finally the 
the Lord who had been in the midst of the candlesticks is outside the door knocking. He's outside looking in. And the candlestick is in danger of being removed. The light is in danger of being taken, taken away. Salt has lost its savor. There's a, uh, a very, very interesting article uh, a few weeks ago in a magazine I read which talked about the deteriorating influence of the American church. And what it was talking about was the, the mainline denominational churches, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, etc. And it was talking about how the, the, those churches, which are mainline denominations, were once the center of society. And that even though there was separation of the church and state, the, there was a marked influence by those churches in all segments of society, but that has deteriorated to the place that they're almost a laughing stock. They still exist. And they, in many cities, uh, like the great congregational church in the center of Manhattan, <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see it uh, because it's a great historic church that was considered the most influential church in all of Manhattan. And today, skyscrapers all around it. If you get on the right street, you can see it down at the end of the street. But, you know, its influence is gone. Its steeple, which used to rise high above the, uh, uh, the city, now has been dwarfed by all of the, all of the uh, uh, great skyscrapers round about. And that, it's typical, really, of what's happened in America to a great degree uh, when it comes to some of these great historic churches. They are, they are figures of the past. They are relics. But they have no longer any real dynamic in terms of influencing our country. Well, praise God, God has raised up a witness, and he has his witness and his remnant even in this day. And churches are still having a certain degree of influence, and I believe bringing a certain amount of blessing uh, to, to the uh, uh, nation in which we live. But realize this, that, that, that we as individuals, if we believe that we are God's voice today, if we believe that we, as we proclaim the Word of God, are, are the clarion call that goes forth in this day, that we're the salt of the earth, that we're the light of the world, if we really believe that's true, realize that when God blesses you, one of the reasons He blesses you is so that your influence can be felt in the world. I don't see anything in Scripture to indicate that God, God the blessing that God sends is, is, uh, to be, uh, is designed to make us selfish. God doesn't want that. He wants us always to be thinking of others. And, and one of the areas of ministry that we can have is as we put together our resources, we can have a mighty influence in the world. We can be the salt. We can be the light. And when people are looking for light, they'll be able to find it because there's an expansion of the influence of the upright. And then, in addition, when, when uh, God blesses the upright, He also uh, can bless the upright's neighbors round about. And there is a uh, there is a, uh, a spilling over uh, to, to other individuals. 
And when God protects you, He may protect a segment of people round about you. And when God uh, sends you prosperity, uh, he, he blesses those round about. That's something that the uh, godless farmers back in the Midwest uh, could never quite understand or grasp. And that was how, in a time of prosperity, God prospered the righteous farmer and also prospered them who were wicked. And uh, they, they don't, just don't understand that God, when he sends rain, uh, could send rain just on the righteous farmer. But he sends it on the unrighteous farmer too. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. And uh, God blesses uh, the surrounding area with uh, fertility and with goodness. He doesn't just stand up there and zap the farmer uh, who is un, uh, unrighteous and bless the farmer that is righteous. All those around benefit from the action of God. And then not only that, but when an individual has the blessing of God, when an individual is upright, that individual can bless others round about because he shares with them his wisdom. He shares his good advice. And there, there are just uh, any number of uh, illustrations in Scripture concerning the, the, the fact that God gives wisdom to one individual and a multitude of people are blessed as a result. Uh, wisdom came to Solomon. And Solomon was able to bring great blessing to those round about because he used that wisdom. Also, their example brings blessing. Uh, there, there needs to be, in our day and age, heroes. We need to have individuals that we look to and, and can point our children to and say, there is an example to follow. And uh, the influence of the example of, a, of an upright man brings blessing to other individuals. Their prayers bring blessing. I think it's safe to say that a great deal of the blessing that has come to this nation has come because there have been a number of people, perhaps more people percentage-wise in uh, years past than in any other nation other than the nation of Israel. And that uh, has brought a great uh, amount of prayer for our nation. We're told in the New Testament we're to pray for the leaders, that we're to pray for kings, for people in places of authority. And God's people often are faithful in doing exactly that. And uh, believe me, those prayers are often answered. God brings tremendous blessing to a nation because of the prayers. And then Keep in mind that God has, has made clear that he often will bless others even for the sake of a small remnant of righteous. Now we know that from uh, Genesis 18 when God was going to destroy Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were, were so wicked that there was absolutely no reason why God just shouldn't wipe them out. Of course, God knew. But when, when Abraham, God knew that there weren't enough righteous to even spare that city. But when Abraham said, Lord, if there are 50 righteous in the city, would you still destroy it? God said, no, 
No. No, I'll spare the city if there are 50 righteous. How about 40? <laughs> Pressing his luck a little bit. How about 30? Got clear down to 10. God said, God said to Abraham, no, if there are 10 righteous people in that city, I won't destroy it. Now, as wicked as it is, I mean, it's a scourge. It's a cancer on society. It's something that's got to be destroyed. You know, it's, uh, someone said some time ago that if God doesn't destroy San Francisco, he would uh, have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, that, that's uh, amusing, and it's probably somewhat true, except for one thing. I think it's safe to say that there are ten righteous in the city of San Francisco. See? If God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous, God might be willing to even spare the wicked city of San Francisco because there are ten righteous. Maybe forty, maybe a hundred. I don't know how many righteous. Maybe they're getting fewer and fewer. But God often will spare a city for the sake of a few righteous. I, I'm inclined to think that in the city of Samaria, when Elisha was there, you remember, and um, um, the Syrian king came down upon the city of Samaria, held it in siege for a considerable amount of time, uh, about two years or so. Uh, and uh, you recall that, that um, the, the city was... Uh, uh, almost at the end of their rope. People had uh, uh, already uh, uh, eaten their children. Um, they had eaten rodents and uh, everything else. They were out of food. They were just about ready to perish. Elisha was there. There may have been a few other righteous. I don't know. There weren't very many. And you wonder why God just didn't say, okay, go ahead. Let them perish. Let them die. But God spared the city. God wasn't about to let his prophet die. He wasn't finished with him yet. And so he spared the city. God often will spare a city because of just a few righteous. So that's a blessing. All right? Now, here, the upright bring the blessing of God and lift up that city so that it's high in its rank. But then there's a contrast that's drawn. That ever familiar vow, the but. But it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. In spite of the fact that there are righteous there and God has blessed the city and exalted the city for the sake of the righteous, there is the ability to, to bring that city down, to overthrow the city by the mouth of the wicked. The word overthrown is the word haras. Haras means to pull down. It means to break. It, needs, it means to destroy. Over in Exodus 15, in the great song of Moses, Concerning Pharaoh, um, the word is used. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 7. When it says, And in the greatness of thine excellency thou hast overthrown them that rose up 
against thee. Thou settest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. The root means to destroy by tearing down. Uh, it was that of uh, razzing a building. Um, it can be uh, used of the tearing down of a city, the tearing down of walls. It's used elsewhere for the tearing down of houses, and in some cases the tearing down of fortresses. Um, Gideon in Judges 6 and verse 25 was met by God uh, and uh, told uh, to get involved in the destruction of the Philistines. And one of the things that Gideon did was to tear down the altars of Baal. I went into the groves and into the, uh, the places, the exalted places where they had placed these altars to uh, this wicked uh, god Baal, and they tore down the altars of, of Baal. Um, in Exodus, or I mean in uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 and 14, uh, in the time of Elijah, uh, under wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel, it says that the people tore down the altars of the Lord. Now, of course, you have a contrast set up right there, don't you? Uh, on one hand, you have Gideon who tore down the altars of Baal, and of course Elijah did the same thing. And then you have the people tearing down the altars of the Lord. Uh, there's, a, there's a lesson in that somewhere. Uh, I'm sure that you understand that we're doing one or the other, probably. You're either tearing down the altar of the Lord, the place of uh, exaltation and praise and worship of God, or you're tearing down the altar of Baal. You can't be neutral on this thing. You're doing one or the other. But now a city is influenced by the wrong ideas and the wrong standards of the wicked. And as a result of that influence, inner decay begins. Then the, the uh, uh, city is, is, is torn down or broken down. The city's security is, is removed. And uh, because righteousness has been breached and the city ultimately will fall. The city of Jerusalem was the place of exaltation of God. It had become a place of worship of idolatry. Uh, the people had become a wicked people. And uh, who would have ever dreamed that this great city, which had been the city of David, the city of, of Solomon, the place where the temple was built, uh, who would have ever dreamed that Nebuchadnezzar could, could rise up and be used as an instrument of justice upon that city and tear down the walls and tear down the, the temple and tear down the city and level it to the ground. Who would have ever dreamed? Of course, the city was destined to be rebuilt. Temple rebuilt under Ezra. The walls rebuilt under Nehemiah. The people again had an exalted city. And uh, ultimately, Herod uh, built a great temple. The city of Jerusalem achieved some notoriety and exalted position again, though it was occupied for a time by the Romans. Ultimately, in 70 AD, it was torn down again and uh, leveled to the ground. Again, the city has, has, has been raised up 
and uh, sits today as a very beautiful city and, and appears similar, though smaller in size and certainly not uh, exactly the, the, uh, the same in dimensions. Nevertheless, it's a, it's a beautiful city today, but constantly under attack. Uh, the city can be torn down because of the influence of the wicked, the wrong ideas and the standards of the, of the wicked. Well, in actual fact, it tells us that, that the mouth of the wicked is uh, the guilty instrument. It's not the, not the sword of the wicked, not the, not the ramparts of the wicked that tear down the city, but it's by the mouth of the wicked. And the mouth, word mouth, again, is the word for breath, peh. And uh, the word wicked is our old friend rasha, the intensification of the word for wrong, the one that is morally wrong. Moffat translates this, the city is, ex uh, is exalted by the success of the upright, but overthrown by the policy of knaves. <laughs> The policy of knaves has, has brought about the destruction of the city. It comes by their bad counsel. So often uh, in the Old Testament scriptures there were those that, that uh, gave counsel from a wicked frame of reference. And as they gave their counsel, uh, their, their counsel proved to be disastrous. It proved to be fatal. Uh, you remember that that uh, uh, King Rehoboam uh, was told uh, by the young men, you, uh, uh, you raise the taxes of the people. People, people need to buckle under. And uh, your father Solomon uh, was um, uh, raised the taxes and put a burden on the people. It was good for them. Now you come along, you raise taxes too. The old men said, hey, Lighten the load. The people need to have. They need a tax break. <laughs> and the the old men were right, and the young men were wrong. Clear as could be. What did Rehoboam do? He decided to follow the advice of the young men. What happens? The kingdom was split. It was amazing. Listen. The ramifications of the split of the kingdom were great. There were ten northern tribes, all right? Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which were united. Rehoboam reigned over Judah, and Jeroboam reigned over, over Israel. If Rehoboam had not put that extra burden on the people, Jeroboam would have no platform for his political power. And when Re Jeroboam split the kingdom, and Rehoboam went his way, and Jeroboam went his way, Jeroboam began to reason that uh, uh, if the people uh, were to go to the center of worship in the city of Jerusalem, which happened to be in Judah, then the, they would begin to uh, uh, have an affinity for the political reign of Rehoboam. So he decided we won't allow our people to go across that border and go into Jerusalem, rather up in Dan and down in Bethel, we will build two golden calves. And we will call those golden calves Jehovah, and uh, we will worship Jehovah 
uh, at our own altars and uh, make these our sacred places rather than save Jerusalem. And that was the beginning of Baal worship in the nation. It wasn't long and the people no longer called those idols, which were forbidden anyway in the law. They no longer called them Jehovah God, but rather they called them Baal. The, the worship of the calf deity, which was a part of Babylonian worship, uh, became a part of their worship. And they had substitute religion. All of that happened. And ultimately, the ten northern tribes went into captivity because of the wickedness and the idolatry. But it all began with a man not taking the advice of the wise men and listening, rather, to a bunch of rebels. Bad advice. It tears a nation apart. It tears a city apart. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat gratifying to, though obviously... Uh, President Reagan is just a man and uh, will make mistakes like any man and have to make amends for them and everything else. But it's somewhat gratifying to hear a man stand up like Reagan did in the press conference the other day and, uh, and, and tell people, this just happens to be my conviction. To do it the other way would be morally wrong. And... Uh, uh, the, the people are telling, uh, are telling him he's getting bad advice when he tries to stem the tide of abortions in this country. People are telling him that, he's, that it's, really, it's really crazy to uh, be against the Equal Rights Amendment and so on and so forth. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know uh, whether all the advice that he's getting is good, but he's getting some good advice from somebody, and I hope that he pays attention. Because by the blessing of the upright, the city will be exalted. But when wicked men begin to use their mouths and give bad counsel and bad advice, when a man begins to listen to the advice of those that are morally twisted, it isn't long and the city is destroyed. Another way that the wicked, uh, the wicked uh, use their mouth to destroy a city is through false testimony. <coughs> Of course, for men to, to, to bear false witness. The law of God, the Decalogue, uh, forbids the bearing of false witness. But false witness is often given. And then by blasphemies and profanities, you wonder sometimes how long God will tolerate the kind of blasphemy that we hear uh, from wicked men. God uh, often will uh, uh, just simply patiently allow a man to blaspheme. And yet, uh, at the same time, ultimately it can destroy. False promises. That's another way that the wicked use their mouths to destroy a city. False promises. Uh, saying things that can never righteously be fulfilled. Fraud is another way. Men use their mouths to, to, to bring about fraudulent acts. And tail-bearing is another way by uh, simply uh, gossiping and, and uh, seeking to undermine the righteous. That often is done as a part of persecution. Proverbs 29 and verse 8 says this, Scornful men bring a city into a snare, 
but wise men turn away wrath. And of course, you already know Proverbs 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So the, the mouth of the wicked can actually bring about the destruction of the city. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. I'll tell you, beloved, I love my country. I bleed red, white, and blue. I'll tell you that. And yet, I fear for our country because the mouth of the wicked is more and more in evidence. And the blessing of the upright is less and less in evidence. And I think that uh, unless God does something remarkable in our nation, we're going to see a continued deterioration. God will ultimately judge. And uh, when he does, we may suffer, but we'll suffer and at the same time receive the blessing of God. And the blessing of God, it maketh rich and adds no sorrow with it. And so therefore, we're not going to be the losers. See, we may lose a little in the way of material things, uh, but uh, fear not them that can kill the body and after that there's nothing they can do, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And we had better capitalize on every opportunity we have to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world because that opportunity may slip from our grasp if God chooses ultimately to bring something to our nation akin to what's being spoken of here, overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Now that brings us then to verse 12. And uh, verse 12 and 13 really kind of fit together. It says, He that is void of wisdom despiseth his neighbor, but a man of understanding holdeth his peace. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. All right? He that is void. Void. Here's the word, kasser, means without, it means destitute, it means lacking, it means that which is in want of or in need of. He that is destitute, destitute of wisdom. Now this is closely related to another word which is often used for a lack of provisions, uh, this sort of thing. But this form is used primarily for a lack of wisdom or a lack of understanding. It's found primarily in the wisdom literature and uh, 13 out of the 19 occurrences of the word are in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 12 and uh, verse 9, it's used uh, speaking of uh, uh, a lack of, uh, of provision. Uh, Proverbs 12, 9, He that is despised and hath a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. 
So it's the idea of a lack. In Proverbs 6, uh, turn back there a minute. Proverbs 6 and verse 32, it says this, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He is devoid of understanding. Thus he commits sin. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 13, it says, In the lips of him that hath understanding wisdom is found, but uh, a rod for the back of him that is void of understanding. Right? Um, in chapter uh, 12 and verse 11, we read, He that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons is void or destitute of understanding. Chapter 15 and verse 21. It says, Folly is joy to him who is destitute of wisdom, but a man of understanding walketh uprightly. Proverbs 17 and verse 18. A man void of understanding, destitute of understanding, striketh hands or enters into, a, into an agreement, cosigns with a, with a friend or neighbor. And then in chapter 24 and verse 30, it says, I went by the fields of the slothful, by the vineyard of the man void or destitute of understanding. In Proverbs 28 and verse 16, it says, The prince that lacketh or is destitute of understanding is also a great oppressor. He that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. And uh, go a step further into Ecclesiastes. It's used there a few times as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 2. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacketh nothing. He's, not, he's destitute of nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not the power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity and it's an evil disease. God gives rich provisions, but the poor guy gets ulcers in the process sometimes and uh, can't eat his good food. Uh, that's a picture, you know, of this, of Solomon uh, sitting there watching his servants enjoy his caviar and pheasant under glass. And he can't, he's eating his warm milk because he's got ulcers. All right. And then in Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 3, Yea, also when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his uh, wisdom faileth him, leaves him destitute. It shows, it shows that he is a, uh, a fool. He can't gain wisdom by look, uh, looking to the giver of wisdom. He's turned his back upon him. Proverbs 9 and uh, verse 4 says, Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. Uh, as for him that lacketh or is destitute of understanding, uh, she saith to him, and so on. He's enticed uh, to uh, be involved in, in wisdom rather than uh, lustful ways. In verse 16 of chapter 9, Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that lacketh understanding, once again, uh, the, the contrast is set up because in that case, it's not wisdom speaking, but rather the temptress. And he falls into sin. 
All right. So that's that's the idea of of uh, Kesar. It's uh, it's the idea of of uh, uh, being destitute of something. Now, what is he destitute of? Uh, he is destitute of a word we've seen before, and uh, you may recognize it. Lab. Lab is heart. Heart. Now, you, you know we talked about the uh, six major words for wisdom way back at the beginning of this study 110 years ago. And uh, we, uh, we, we have occasionally bumped into this use of the word. The word means heart, not the organ that pumps, pumps the blood, uh, but rather the inner person. He lacks he lacks inward character, really, is the basic idea here. Um, we, we saw this use of the word heart in a number of passages. Look with me, just uh, start in chapter 6 and just follow through. There's, this is used not just once or twice, but a number of times. Chapter 6, verse 32. Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, and he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. The word understanding is the word laid. Chapter 7, in verse 7, it says, I beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a man void of understanding. Same word, the word heart. Chapter 9, in verse 4, chapter 9, in verse 4, whoso is simple, let him turn in hither, as for him that lacketh understanding. Some of these same verses we gave you just moments ago. Same thing in verse 16. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither, and as for him that lacketh understanding. Again, the word understanding. Chapter 10 and verse 13. In the lips of him that hath understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod for the back of him that is void of the second word understanding is the word heart, the word lave. Chapter 10, verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of heart, lack of wisdom. Chapter 12 and verse 11, he that telleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons is destitute of heart. Chapter 15 and verse 21, Folly is joy to him who is destitute of heart, but a man of understanding walketh upright. Verse 32 of the same chapter. He that refuseth instruction despiseth his, his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. Chapter 17 and verse 18. A man void of heart, understanding, striketh hands. And verse uh, uh Chapter 19, verse 8. He that getteth wisdom loveth his own soul. He that keepeth understanding uh, shall find good. In this case, the word wisdom is the word heart. And the word understanding is a different word. And then in chapter 24 and verse 30, it says, I went by the field of the slothful, by the vineyard of the man, void of heart, void of late. Now, the heart is really the soul of man. The mind, emotions, the will, the conscience, self-consciousness. It's interesting, the scripture tells us we love the Lord our God with all our heart. And uh, 
The heart sometimes is spoken of as just the mind, as a man thinketh in his heart. That's the mind. It sometimes is the emotion, where it's speaking of the heart in, in emotional terms. Uh, the, 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 the feeling of the heart, or uh, a broken heart, uh, something of that sort. It sometimes is speaking of the will of the individual. The fact that he, uh, that he has, uh, has, a, uh, has made a decision uh, con concerning the future, perhaps, in his heart. Sometimes is a reference to the consciousness or the conscience of a person. Uh, his heart is made aright, uh, and uh, it's the idea of a, of, of a tender conscience. And then self-consciousness, uh, the, the awareness that you are a person and the awareness of other people, that really comes from the soul. And sometimes the word heart is, uh, is used for the whole of the soul, the mind, the emotions, the will, the whole shooting match. And uh, so the, 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 the idea of heart has to do with all that's involved in the inner character and often the context will give us a specific aspect that's being emphasized, the mind or the emotions or whatever. But uh, it, is, it is often speaking of, of the inner character. The Hebrews used uh, heart for wisdom instead of kokmah for a very special emphasis. Kokmah was the word for heart, uh, for uh, skill, uh, and and the most common word for wisdom in the wisdom literature. But when th there needed some times to be a special emphasis, and uh, God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring the the sacred writer, uh, gave him. Uh, the 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 words to to speak and the oracles of God, and uh, instead of using kokmah, uh, the word that is so common, we've seen it over and over again. Once in a while, he interrupts by using this for a special emphasis. It's not simply the skill of a man outwardly that's being spoken of, but rather the the root of it all, the heart of it all, the fact that, that within the man there is a character that produces certain kind of results. And it speaks of the totality of man's inner or immaterial nature. And th so when it's used uh, in this way, it speaks of, of, of good sense that arises out of the inner character. Uh, it often, uh, if you notice the text that we read, it often is dealing with a matter of discernment or a matter of judgment. Uh, the man who is void of heart is the guy that strikes hands with, with someone else, makes an agreement that perhaps cannot be kept righteously or justly. It's the man who is void of heart who goes into a prostitute. Uh, it is the man who is who is uh, void of, of heart, who is easily susceptible uh, to, to sin, and so on. And so you have, you have a pattern set up. It is a matter of good sense that an individual has that, do, that comes out of deep inner character. Thus it isn't uh, surprising to find the Revised Standard Version translating it this way. He who belittles his neighbor lacks sense. He that belittles his neighbor lacks sense. Or another translation, the senseless man pours contempt on his neighbor. Now, it's, it's that very thing of which he's guilty. He despises his neighbor. He pours contempt upon his neighbor. 
And uh, in our in our text, in our translation, it says, "He that is destitute of heart, destitute of good sense, despiseth his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace." He's guilty of despising. We'll have to get into that next week. All right. Let's bow, shall we, for a word of prayer. And Father, we thank you so much for the lessons that we learn. We pray that we will be those who are upright, who are recipients of your blessing, and who preserve our nation. Help us to be salt and light. For if we lose that, we will lose everything. And then, Lord, help us to have heart as we go out into the world today. Help us to have good sense that arises from an inward character. Help us to be men of God and live for you no matter what the consequence in the future. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good day.